What a privilege it is for a pastor and a group of leaders to have a fellow leader who's just knocking it out of the park. I mean, it is, we can all be proud and thankful for her. And I, I want to I really uh, hammer on that fear sense. I mean, it, Erica's, Erica's young. She, is, she hasn't been a child care director for decades and kind of knows the drill and knows what to do in these kind of scenarios, you know. She steps into that place uh, in learner mode, having to figure it out as she goes. And there's something really cool there because she might have the sense that she's all alone. That might be uh, curbed a little bit by all of us, you know, you're not alone, you're with us, but I think even more so a recognition that Jesus is with her and on her side. I would suggest that there is a fearlessness involved in all of your behalfs that makes Erica's work possible, and that happens in what we just did in this time of worship, receiving tithes and offerings. She can't do what she's doing if you guys aren't fearlessly honoring God and worshiping Him financially. That's a beautiful thing. It's a community effort here, and I am, uh, I'm just totally stoked about it. So anyway, that is the theme today in our text. We've been in a series on the gospel according to Mark, and today we step out of his sort of teaching mode, Jesus's, and into the, into Mark telling us how the story continues to unfold. And so, just after uh, Mark has recorded Jesus' teaching on the mystery of the kingdom of God. Our story will begin. This is a time where Jesus had a big crowd around him, so large that he had sort of floated halfway out in a boat so he could address the people. And then afterward, there were the grimacing grins and the confused looks as much of the crowd dissipated and left except for his disciples and a close group around them who we learned were seeking. They were interested in, they were paying attention to Jesus. And that seemed to be Mark's big thing. Paying attention to him, giving your attention to that part of your world, to Jesus, seemed to be really crucial for actually being able to understand him. So that's where we landed. And then we begin the story today. I'm going to read it all the way through to begin. I don't usually do this. Try something different. And then I want to storytell it. We're in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. I'll begin and read down through this. Verse 35. On that day, this is that teaching day, when the evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So after leaving the crowd, they took him along just as he was in the boat and other boats were with him. Now, a great windstorm developed, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was nearly swamped. But he was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. They woke him up, and they said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? So he got up, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Be quiet, calm down. And then the wind stopped, and it was dead calm. And he said to them, why are you so cowardly? Do you still not have faith? They were overwhelmed by fear, and they said to one another, who is this man? Even the wind and the sea obey him. 
I'd like you to pray with me. Father, we sit with those disciples in that moment and say, who are you? We do come to a place, often in our lives, frequently sometimes, where we're in awe. Yesterday, I watched the sun rising behind Mount Hood, and I was in awe. It's just your grandeur and beauty. It's awesome. And yet, that awesome moment teaches me very little about you. There's more to the story than just being in awe. And as we now more carefully go down through this text, I I pray, I ask that you would help us perceive you, that you would sharpen our perception, that we would be able to see and understand your presence in our lives. We think of the great disconnect that happened at the garden long ago where we were in your presence, but it was severed. And the moment we entered into a broken world, Without you walking alongside of us, we were crippled by fear and guilt and shame. And now, many thousands of years later, we are still struggling with it. So have mercy on us, O God, and help us to understand your presence in our lives. Help us to see what you're teaching us through this story. Amen. For weeks now, this man named Jesus had been walking with these guys, traveling with his friends, and they were tired, no doubt about it. He was clearly a pretty powerful guy, okay? He had, he had a lot of power, more powerful than anybody they'd ever met, and yet he was just like them in the human sense of being tired and fatigued and exhausted walking around constantly, sleeping on the dusty ground, speaking and teaching, getting hounded endlessly by crowds who wanted more and more from him. And the crowds, they were not always that supportive of him, you know. They kind of gave him some grief. Jesus had not exactly pleased everybody since he hit the scene doing his thing, nor had he hurt people. He certainly had not started any really big movements or campaigns. Some had called him radical, and crazy. Others thought he was ignorant and evil. Others were strangely drawn to him. He was, it's, it's hard to come up with, with a, he was like this. There really wasn't anybody else ever that he could be compared to. He wasn't liberal and he wasn't conservative. He wasn't pro-Rome and he wasn't anti-Rome. He wasn't pro-Israel. Well, I think he actually was pro-Israel, but not in the way that many would have wanted him to be. He wasn't mean to people. He certainly wasn't nice. Well, he was, but not in the way that much of our culture would expect him to be nice. We might instead say he was kind, and he was thoughtful, and he was good much more than nice. He wasn't an insecure and isolated guy, but he also wasn't out there trying to get popular. And although he spoke very plainly, his words were often difficult to understand. This man was 100% different, 100% different. Who is this man? His friends would say this. They, They liked him in some real way and they were drawn to him so powerfully that they were willing to leave their professions, their families, to follow him and become his learners, to become his disciples. But however much they liked him, their perception about who he was, 
needed to be sharpened. They had the gist of it, maybe, kind of, dot, 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 or not at all sometimes, and other times maybe more. You know, you see, they kind of have these glimpses where it's like, I totally get you. Who are you? What's going on? If you could somehow get into the interior life of these men, I think you would find a certain fear, like a nervousness about the decision to follow him. They were drawn to him, but they were not sure. A hundred percent sure, anyway. It's like they perceived who he was, but still when they were there, they didn't know, and yet they stayed with him, and they were following, and they were learning. Now, as you might have already sensed, this whole story from Mark so far has been taking place in Jesus's Jewish world. So we're thinking the west side of Galilee, okay? This is a land where Jewish people were hanging out. This was the place where the, the, the good people of God were, were living, and then this day, the most unusual thing happened. Jesus finds himself utterly exhausted, having been teaching and working hard for many days. And there they were on the edge of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and the sun was beginning to set behind the west hills. Verse 35. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. What? What? The other side of the lake was basically no man's land for a Jewish person. This side, the west side, this was the right world to be in. That was the unclean place. That was the place of the Gentiles. That was the place where pig farming was acceptable and demons gathered in legions. For a person trying to be on the good side of life, what possible reason would you want to break on through to the other side? Especially to that other side. Wasn't Jesus here just to help and heal Israel, the good people of God? Wasn't that the point? Wasn't he here to condemn and get rid of those other kinds of people? Isn't that what a glorious and good God does? He gets rid of the bad ones, the ones who think wrongly and believe incorrectly. What possibly could the people of God have to do with the people who were not at all of God? This was a perfect example of how Jesus was so different. His way, his words, his life, it just looks so unique larger than life, like he confidently, deeply, unquestionably knew something about life that nobody had ever figured out yet. Well, having learned to not argue with Jesus, the disciples probably just said something like, okay, we'll go. Verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took Jesus along just as he was in the boat, and there were also other boats with them. Jesus' feet dipped into the water as he climbed over the starboard gunwale of the boat and then back to the spot that was always reserved for the guests that were distinguished. Back in those days, they would put a distinguished guest on a small seat in the stern, in the very back end of the boat, oftentimes with a cushion or a small rug for, for him or her to sit on. 
Several of the disciples were experienced sailors. We already know that. They were fishermen, having come from the Sea of Galilee, commercial fishing jobs. And I like to think maybe Andrew took the helm, okay? The helmsman would stand close to the stern, but still in front, so that he was able to see ahead where the boat was going. As veteran sailors... Some of these disciples had at least two things going for them. One is they were confident in their ability to navigate Galilean waters, as it were. It's, it's not as though they were out, like I did on Minnesota, fishing on lots of different lakes. There's just this lake, and that's what they're fishing on. So they're, they're good at sailing on the Lake of Galilee. They're savvy in the ways of first century maritime life, if you will. And the second thing is, they knew, they knew the dangers of traversing Galilee. Now, Galilee is about eight miles wide. It's about 13 miles up and down, north to south. So it's not a very monstrous kind of, you know, ocean. And it's, it's crazy, kind of like a temperamental kitty cat, if you will. It looks kind of nice and soft and fuzzy, but you never know when it's going to bite you in the face, you know. That's like a cat. Well, that's like the Sea of Galilee. You would have up in the north and northeast, you have a, it's not totally unlike what happens with our Cascade Mountains here in the gorge, okay? So you have, uh, you have the uh, mount or the plateau of Trachonitis, the heights of Haran and the summit of Mount Hermon up there, and the air would compress down through the valleys and blast out onto the Sea of Galilee. So you often had very, very ferocious storms pop up quickly, unexpectedly. Hefty gusts would whip the lake up into white caps in no time flat, and any voyager across that lake was always liable to hit some pretty gnarly weather at a moment's notice. And that's exactly what happened this evening. As the small rolling waves grew bigger and stronger, and the shore behind them grew more distant. Now they're rolling up and down, higher and higher. Simon Peter, I suspect, was the first to grow concerned. Watching the other boats in the fleet, he's looking side to side. You can imagine it's getting darker, and those boats that were like this, now they're popping up and down. The hulls, the keel splashing harder. Wind starts to howl. Their hair starts to flail in the air, eyes squinted as they were pelted by splashing rain and waves. The sky darkened, and as the bow of the bolt jolted up and down, its wooden keel hammered the waves beneath. The men gripped onto the gunnels of the boat, and the curved bow blasted through those cold waves. This is too much! It's too much! One screamed, but the noise of the storm drowns out his voice. The waves which had been shooting out to the sides as the boat slapped through them were now so tall it was like a wall and the, and the bow had to crash right into it and then the water comes gushing over the edges with each pounding wave, verse 37. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now the men furiously fought to keep their oars from being lost, and they fought to keep themselves from being thrown into the chaos of the sea. They tried in vain to bail out the water, but no matter what they did, they felt the boat getting heavier and slower, 
sinking deeper down beneath the surface. Life was so threatening to them that they could not pay attention to anything other than their fear. It gripped them. Now the water was nearly knee deep, getting swamped, sloshing and splashing. We're going to get swamped here, he hollered out. We're going we're gonna to die. We're not going to make it. We need to turn back. Listening to the pounding wind was like listening to cruel abuse, painful, isolating, making them feel totally alone in the chaos. Being tossed by the waves, the boat in danger. It wasn't just their bodies that were in pain. Their hearts were imperiled as well. Taking a battering, not just physically, but emotionally as well. Alone in the chaos. And then, just as Andrew flipped his head around to try to see how far they were from the shore, something most unusual caught the corner of his eye. He had completely forgotten about their distinguished guest. There down in the back of the boat was Jesus, quietly, sleeping, 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 sleeping. Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Here in the midst of a raging sea, chaos surrounding them, this man Jesus was at rest. And it was not just Andrew who had forgotten that he was there. All the disciples had reacted so normally to their circumstance that they had totally forgotten Jesus' presence. Their responses to their situation were totally reasonable. They absolutely had the kinds of responses that any average sailor would have had. Their situation was just so demanding, so crucial, so important that the presence of Jesus was really insignificant. And when Jesus' presence is not significant, it is almost impossible to see they felt lost and hopeless, unsafe and unsure about their future, unable to know the best decision to make in this situation. And under such perceived pressure, Jesus had simply faded into the background. They had no problem perceiving the death threat right before them. But to be able to perceive Jesus' presence and the significance of it was nearly impossible for them. They felt alone, even though they were not. They felt like their lives were in real danger, as though physical death was the ultimate end. But their lives were not in danger at all. Years later, they would learn that nothing, even death, can separate you from the love of God. And in their panicked, stressed, furiously busy state, the response to Jesus' presence was not good. His reaction to the death threats of the world were not normal. He was not afraid, verse 38. And so the disciples woke him and they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, 
Don't you care if we drown? They were angry with him. He wasn't concerned with the most important thing. They felt that if he was truly one of them, then he would react the same way that they did to this world. Which, of course, was logical and rational and realistic. A sane, realistic person would have reason to be terrified. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? They screamed through the storm as the wind gusts and waves were pounding harder than ever. The furious sea is literally beating them to death. Verse 39, he got up. He rebuked the wind, and he said to the waves, be quiet, be still, and then the wind immediately died down, and it was perfectly calm. Floorboard creaks under Peter's foot. The tall mast of the boat, which had been swaling back and forth, now stood perfectly straight. All the other boats around them sat Perfectly still. The water became glass, smooth. You could hardly see a ripple anywhere in it. Not even a breath or a whisper of wind. Just a pure, perfect, sublime silence over the waters. Nobody could speak. That's cool. The raging terror of the most ferocious storm any of these long-traveled sailors had ever seen did not, did not wind down. The wind and the rain did not taper off. The monstrous waves did not slowly become smaller and then finally smooth over. No, between the great storm and the great calm was Jesus' active word. Even more curious, Jesus did not pray to God. He didn't ask for help. Maybe like a great prophet, there were no invocations of God's holy name. No, in the name of the Lord, I command thee. No, there was none of that at all. No, Jesus just spoke to the wind and to the sea as though they were persons, as though he himself knew them as though he were divine. And with zero delay, the wind and the sea immediately obeyed him, perfectly calm. The disciples are sitting there, you can imagine. They thought about the words that Jesus used in his rebuking. It was like an echo. They had heard these words before. He had uttered these bold commands previously in the synagogue. In fact, this was the same exact line that Jesus had used to shut down the demons. Be quiet. Literally, be muzzled. Demons which threatened the very life of a person were shut down by this man. Storms which threatened the life of a person were shut down by this man. The seas, which were symbolic of the world's chaos and threat to life, were shut down by this man. Between the great storm and the great calm was the active word of Jesus. 
But now you would imagine this moment would be a great relaxation, that the fear would just dissipate. Ah, now we're in the calm. Thank you. You've done what we needed you to do. Thank you. Ah, we're at peace. You would imagine that, but in fact, their fear only intensifies. It gets stronger, but now it changes. Previously, fear to the world. And now they say, who is this man? As they sat there totally shocked at what had just happened, verse 40, Jesus said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Why so cowardly? Do you still have no faith? They respond in the way that most of the crowds had responded to Jesus, in fear. The story says they feared a great fear. That's the same line that we see in the story of Jonah. The men on Jonah's boat feared a great fear, and they too went to the sleeping man of God in the boat. Similarities are, are there, but this is very different, isn't it? Jesus is no Jonah. And at Jesus' question, verse 40, they were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They did not say, wow, we now understand this man. Now his mighty action did not teach them about Jesus as much as it raised big questions about him. Instead they said, who is this man? Who is this demon-destroying, disease-healing, storm-controlling man that wants to break through into a godless world with godless sinners who have royally screwed up their lives? What does a man like this have to do with the people like us? Who is this man? How could that kind of love and power and glory have anything to do with somebody like me, like us? Who is this man? And maybe even more appropriate than who is this man was another question. Another question, only appropriate for a person who wants to be with Jesus, and that is, how can I possibly learn from this man? He's so different. Everything about him is different. The disciples were faced with an intense challenge. Plenty of times, including this situation on the sea, the disciples were totally in awe of Jesus. Wow moments were just part of life with this man. But they were going to need to learn about him in a different way. Being in awe of Jesus was not enough. They needed to learn from him about the source of their insatiable, crippling fear. And they were going to need to learn about how to perceive his real presence in their lives. These disciples were scared. They were a people of weak faith, difficulty understanding the things of God because of their thwarted perception. And yet Jesus still totally loved them as his true friends. He did not kick them out. 
There was no rejection from him. Nor was there any mollycoddling. No attempt to make them feel good about their weakness or happy about their failure as though it was just normal or being normal in the world's eyes is a good thing. No, he reprimanded them, didn't he? He scolded them. They have not rejected Jesus, but they have failed to understand him. And he tells them that by now they should have had more faith than the average crowd, the average part of the culture. And as he worked to correct them and sharpen their perception, he stayed with them. Emmanuel, God with us. And they stayed with them, with him. And he loved them. And their journey continued in togetherness. Jesus would teach them that his presence in this world with them was their absolute, ultimate win. Having Jesus present in their life and being able to perceive that he is always with you is more of a win than surviving. Our win is not getting people to observe and honor our rights. Our win is not getting the things we want. Our win is not as much health as we can possibly get for approximately 80 years. Our win is not to survive the storm, as it were. No, Jesus would have to teach us that if God is for us, who or what can be against us? Who can possibly separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or people rejecting us or poverty and hunger and nakedness or danger or sword are those things? If the absolute worst case possible scenario were to whip us up in the gusts of our chaotic lives, would that be the end? Not at all. Death itself, whether we are drowning in Galilee or losing big time in life, cannot separate us from God. We do not need to have fear. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, Neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fear of being separated from God came to us after the garden, and it plagues us constantly. Jesus enters into this world as Emmanuel, God with us, to remind us he is with us. Well, after this scene, roll out about 400 years, okay? We'll go to Algeria, modern-day Algeria, North Africa, a little town called Hippo. It wasn't that little, really. Uh, and there's a man there named Augustine. Augustine was a great churchman. He's sitting in his office in his church, if you will. Augustine was a man who was walking with Jesus, now 400 years later, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He was walking with Jesus like you and me, with the Savior, learning to love him, learning to understand him more and more each day. Augustine was a theologian and a philosopher carefully studying this text we just read, Mark, writing down his thoughts so that he could teach fellow Christians, you and me and others, 
about this man, Jesus. And here's what he wrote for the church that day. St. Augustine, he said, when you have to listen to abuse, that means you are being pounded by the wind. When your anger is roused, you are being tossed by the waves. So when the winds blow and the waves mount high and the boat is in danger, your heart is imperiled, your heart is taking a battering. And on hearing yourself insulted, you long to retaliate. But the joy of revenge brings with it another kind of misfortune, shipwreck. Why is this? Because Christ is asleep in you. What do I mean? I mean you have forgotten his presence. Rouse him then. Remember him. Let him keep watch within you. Pay heed to him. Listen to him. A temptation rises. It is the wind. It disturbs you. It is the surging of the sea. This is the moment to awaken Christ and let him remind you of those words. Who can this be? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Pray with me. Jesus, you are great and greatly to be praised. My, my heart is racing right now as I think about you and this community that you've formed here, us with one another. To know that you're present in each of our lives and here with us in this room, that you have something to say about how we live, that you have a truth to teach us about this eternal life we've been invited to live with you. God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Please help us through your spirit and through each other. Help us to pay heed, to give attention to you, to give our lives to you. Jesus, you certainly gave yours to us. Thank you for your patience. That while we fall and we fail and our faith is weak, you stay with us, you hold us close, you pick us up, and you keep on teaching us how to live with you. You are great. And you are greatly to be praised. And, we, and I will speak on behalf of everybody here. We love you and we trust you and we need you. Amen.